You know uh, the, the type of person that's like kind of resolute to like a particular goal? You guys ever meet somebody that's like, hey, this is, this is my, I don't know, you could say your vision. This is my goal for life. This is the thing that I want to accomplish. And they are dead set on doing it. Those people are, are pretty compelling people, aren't they? They're, they're people that you're just, you're drawn to you. In some ways you want to follow them. You want to, you're like, wow, I, I may not agree with your goal exactly. But the, the passion with which, the, the, the grit that you go after that particular goal for your life is impressive. This could be somebody as simple as that, say, I want, I want to get healthier in my life. And so they have this goal and they, they lose a bunch of weight and they do all these, you know, it's not like something that makes them better than anybody else, but it's like, wow, that's impressive, right? There are leaders that do things like this. And I'm not condoning anybody as, whenever I speak about politicians up here, please don't hear me as condoning all of their actions or, or even what they're doing in the moment that I'm impressed. But like, think about like people, the reason, one of the reasons that like Ronald Reagan was such a popular president by, for many people is his, 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 his uh, grit to say, we will win this cold war, right? We are going to do this. I think of President Obama, and his goal of giving the Affordable Care Act to America. And I mean, think about how much he was challenged and put down and crushed for doing this. How are we going to afford to do this? How can we possibly do it? And he just, like, he just said, this is something that we are going to accomplish. We are going to provide health care for millions of Americans that don't have it before. I mean, these are, like, these are people, right, that we're compelled by. And I think in this passage, we see Jesus begin to, to show even more than ever kind of his grit, his resolute vision towards a particular goal, the mission that God the Father had given to him. So Jesus had gone about preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then in chapter 9, we see him kind of focus his energy. And it says in chapter 9, verse 51, that he has resolutely set himself towards Jerusalem. That's the word that Luke gives. He's resolutely set himself towards Jerusalem. And we don't really know what that means in chapter 9, but it's starting to be revealed now. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, don't go. <laughs> King Herod wants to kill you. Now, I don't know about you, but isn't this a little bit odd that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus to warn him about Herod wanting to kill him? If you follow the gospel stories, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for the most part, the Pharisees are seen as negative figures, right? The people that are pushing back against Jesus. They're trying to keep him from uh, his, his mission, his goal, and ultimately they play a role in his death. They have rejected him as the Messiah. But, there, but Luke, of all of the gospel writers, seems the most willing to, to give uh, the Pharisees a little bit of a, 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 pure, a better picture, right? There's a little bit more nuance to the Pharisees than that we see in the other gospels. I mean, we see examples of this in, in numbers of gospels, but in particular Luke. Simon the Pharisee welcomes Jesus into his house. And, and John, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus at night asking him. He's curious. He has questions. What does it mean to be born again? Why do you keep saying, you know, these these confusing things that we don't understand, right? So there are Pharisees that are willing to give Jesus a chance. They're kind of waiting, waiting and seeing what's going to happen. And then we even see in Acts that after Jesus, his death and resurrection, there are Pharisees that come and, and, and become followers of Jesus. And so this is not just a, one group of people that had one particular stance, but there, as with any movement, there is nuance, right? There are people that take different paths. So they come to Jesus and they say, please don't go. 
to Jerusalem. Herod is looking to kill you. And I love this response by Jesus because he's just like, go tell that fox. <laughs> to us, it was like, I mean, what's the big, like calling someone a fox is kind of different, right? Like that's not really a great, that's not a great comeback. You know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't, like, wouldn't slay anybody, right? Or like, uh, but then it would have been significant. It's basically saying you morally bankrupt leader, right? You, <laughs> you imposter is basically what he's saying. You who think that you're king, but you have no idea what it means to be king. See, Herod and Antipas is the, is the Herod that we have in this passage is different than Herod the Great. Herod the Great was his father, and Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus, if you remember, at his birth. And this Herod killed John the Baptist just a few years ago, Jesus' cousins. So believe me, he doesn't have a very fond view of Herod. And he shows that he is unafraid. Now that may seem like obvious, but Herod had a lot of power. <laughs> He could have had Jesus put to death. But Jesus is unafraid. And he basically says that whatever Herod's plan is will not come and overtake God's plan, the Father's plan for my life. The will of God is going to happen. And believe me, no prophets of God die outside of Jerusalem, right? That's the place that prophets die. So he says, Herod, you thug. You imposter, you morally bankrupt leader, I'm not afraid of you. I'm going to Jerusalem because that is what God the Father has called me to do. That's what we have decided is my mission. So Jesus, in this moment, gives us a very clear picture of how he sees himself, what his vocation, what his job is in the world and he says to them, he says, I'm going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to keep casting out demons. I'm going to be healing the sick. And I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die at the hands of the authority. This is what my mission is. What matters is that Jesus has this destiny to fulfill. He's almost dismissive of Herod. Right? This is somebody that had... A lot of control, right? I mean, a lot of power in many ways. And Jesus is really dismissive of him. I have no time for this. I am focused. Regardless of what comes up, regardless of the, uh, the opponents, of people that are against me, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to fulfill the mission that I'm set out to fulfill. And this is like, I mean, to me, this is inspiring, right? So many of us, like one of the things I try to, like I, I want to instill in my kids, like everybody has different talents and abilities, right? But life is not so much about talent and abilities. It's sometimes just about this inner grit, right? To make things happen. I want to instill that in my children to say like, you need to have this grit to get through difficult times, to not be afraid, to not be put off by challenges. The people that try to, to break down what you're going to do. If it doesn't work out in the first few months or first few years, that you're not just going to give up on whatever you sense is, are the goals for your life or, or even the calling of God in your life. So no one could miss Jesus' goal here, his grit here, his, his vision that he is unafraid and he's headed to Jerusalem. So he says, two days I'm going to be at work and then one day I'm going to complete 
what I'm going to do. Two days to cast out demons and a day to cure, or a day to cast out demons, a day to cure illnesses, and, I, and, I, and it shall be finished on the third day. So if we're reading this passage and what Jesus is trying to say, Jesus often is speaking in ways that uh, may, may seem like code to us, but have been very clear at that time. He's essentially saying, I'm going and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And this is a prediction of his resurrection that he's going to, on the third day, complete his mission. This is pointing forward, a prediction of Jesus pointing forward that he's going to come alive again, that he's going to complete his task, that his destiny is the resurrection, even though he will die. This is significant. This is like a really significant thing. And maybe it doesn't seem that way for, for many of us who are at this church. Maybe you have a, a, a love for Jesus already, a belief in Jesus to follow him. But a lot of skeptics, even now in the world today, would love for you to believe that Jesus was simply a victim of his time. One that faced a brutal death and that the legend that became of Jesus' resurrection and the Holy Spirit coming and the church was the disciples trying to find meaning in the death of Jesus. So they added on that Jesus was dying for the sins of the world and that the resurrection really took place. They were trying to justify their lives and the years that they had spent following this false, maybe this good person, but a false Messiah. So all this is legendary that came later. But we see even in Luke 9, we see in many other passages, or Luke 13, and in other passages throughout the New Testament that Jesus is pointing towards something that he believes is his mission. Something that he believes is ultimately why he came. So certainly Jesus was a victim of those that were afraid of him and hated him and dismissed him. He was brutalized, even though he did nothing wrong. But it's wildly untrue that Jesus did not know what was coming. He says so right here in this passage. Jesus knew his vocation. He knew his death was coming as he predicted it. He had taken a tabulation of what the prophets of God, messengers that had come before him, had experienced, and he knew that that was to also his end result. He knows that true messengers of God go to Jerusalem and die in Jerusalem. And those that don't know their history are bound to repeat it, and it happens to him as well. But his story will be different, right? His story will be different than the prophets of old because he is predicting, he's saying on that third day, something will happen. He will reach a different type of goal. He will bring a new significance and a new meaning. What everyone else will mean for evil, it will be used for the greatest good that the world has ever known. So we have this picture of this powerful, strong, full of vision and passion and grit, Jesus, focusing on what God the Father and Jesus the Son had prepared you know, before the foundation of the world began to, to do, to save the world. And in the midst of this, he shares, the passage goes on and he shares some grief, some sadness, some lament, it's like Jesus in that moment realizes what he's going to do and what he's going to accomplish, but then he realizes what is at stake. And he's shaken with grief. He's filled with lament as he considers how these Pharisees and so many others in Israel have so far encountered him. 
Verse 34 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hens gather their chicks under their wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I remember when I was a young kid, my mom would, uh, would say things to me that I thought were a little bit confusing, right? So she, she, she'd be like, I love you, David. Right? I, had a, I was very fortunate to have a mom and dad that, that really were great parents and that loved me a lot. And my mom would say, you know, I love you so much that I would die for you. And I remember being like, is, there's nobody trying to kill you, Mom. Like, there's no, like, like, no one's trying to kill me. You know, we live in rural Michigan, right? Like, I mean, it is about the safest place that you could be in the whole entire world. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, who is trying to kill you? What's the point of you telling me that? But I think what she was trying to say is that I love, I, I love you all the way to death, Right? Like, you could, no matter what you do, no matter how you fail, no matter how you don't live up to my expectations, I love you. I care for you. I'm even willing to, to die for you. And moms have that type of love. I remember when I was sick or scared in the middle of the night. And maybe some of you did this, and you'd cry out for your parents, right? And be like, Mom, Dad. That's how we would do it in our house. I don't know if everybody. And you know, there's always, like, you don't know who's coming. But I don't know about you, but I was always hoping my mom came, not my dad. My dad would come in, and he's a great man, a great father, very loving, compassionate, all those things. But he would be like, all right, you know, nothing, nothing to fear here. And he'd head back to bed, right? <laughs> my mom... I mean, she would lay next to me. She'd rub your back. She'd want to hear all my feelings, right? And all my emotions. And why are you, you don't need to be afraid. I got a bat under my bed. You, you know, like, like all, she did, she'd just labor with me, right? She'd sit up and, you know, as I'm throwing up, she'd want to be in the bathroom with me, right? You know, she'd want to be, you know, I didn't have any hair to hold, but she was there. She was ready, right? And moms, I think more than anybody else, long for their kids to do the right thing, <laughs> to make the right decisions. They're the ones that, I mean, this is like a little bit stereotypical, but they're just like worried about their kids. My, my mom, I'm just worried about the influences, right? Worried about me making bad decisions and every single friend. I remember one time I've said this before. She's like, if you do drugs, I'm sending you to juvie, right? I still love you, but I'm sending you there. Like, we're not dealing with this, Right? And I was kind of scared. Like, I, I'm not going to be honest. We drove by a juvie every single day, and she'd point it out sometimes. Be like, if you do drugs, right? That's, that's where you're going. And so you sort of get annoyed by this as you get older, right? As your parents, and sometimes, like, it can be a little bit too much. But I think that, that, but moms probably exemplify almost more than anyone else in our culture this deep, deep care. And this is the kind of love that, and care that Jesus is describing in this passage. This is the, the, uh, a motherly love. Picture he gives here is of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. So imagine a fire on the farm, right? 
And this is a hen that covers with her wings, covers up the chicks so that they will stay safe. And this, is actually, this actually happens, right? There are times when people have fires on farms. They'll, they'll found, find the mom that's, that's dead and, and burned to death, right? And, and they'll lift up their wings and there'll be actually baby like chicks underneath their wings alive. They had survived the fire. And this is the imagery that Jesus wants everyone to see. The kind of love that I have for you, the kind of mission that I am upon is to save you like a mother hen cares for her babies. The hen has quite literally given her life to save the children. It's this vivid and violent image of what Jesus declared he longed to do for Jerusalem and the people of God. And by implication for all of Israel, all of Israel like I just said. But at that moment... All he could see was all these people that had rejected him. It's like the little chicks that were during the fire where they were confused, right? And instead of looking for shelter, they ran off to try to do it on their own. And they rejected him. They're running in the opposite direction of their Messiah that they had longed for. For generations. They had taken no notice of the danger that was approaching, nor the urgent warnings of the one who alone could give them safety. You know, this passage, if you read it in, the, in Matthew's gospel, it's included there as well. It's backed up right to the woes. Jesus gives all these woes to the Pharisees. And that's a pretty disturbing like, passage in some ways because I think most people take it as like, Jesus is condemning these people, right? And he's just saying, you're whitewashed tombs, right? You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is, is filthy and dirty. And I, I, I have all, kind of always interpreted, oh, wow, Jesus, I mean, this is like... Like, you are really going after these people. But I think this passage with this illustration that backs up to it changes my perception a bit. Because in the same way that my mom threatened me with juvie, (laughs) Jesus is saying, don't you understand? If you go this path, it leads to destruction. I'm the one that's here to save you. I'm the one that's here to rescue you. I am the God in the flesh to bring you life. I'm going to die so that you can live, but you're running away from your only protection. He longs to protect even these people that he criticizes. He longs for it to be different. And this is why he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He repeats it. That's a, this is a common thing. This is King David's words for Absalom in 2 Samuel. He dies at war and he says, oh, it should have been me. I should have been the one that was there. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. He's crying out for his child who's passed away. This is the passage just a few weeks ago where we talked about Mary, or last week, Mary and Martha, right? He says, Martha, Martha. This is a longing for Jerusalem to understand what is really happening. It's really taking place. He longs to protect them. This is a lamenting of Jesus, knowing that no matter what he does, it seems as if these people simply will not understand. These words are better understood as words of sorrow. 
Ezekiel, too, Ezekiel speaks of this too. He says, I, God talks about it in Ezekiel, I should say. I take no delight in the death of the wicked. This is something that they are leading themselves towards. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This picture of the hen and the chickens, I believe, is the strongest statement we see so far in Luke that Jesus thinks, what Jesus thinks his death would be all about. And he knows that since Jerusalem has this long history of rejecting the prophets, of rebelling against God, refusing the way of peace, and we can see with devastating clarity that Jesus is on the journey to Jerusalem and what it's going to mean for him. He understands it. And that's why he's crying out. This is why he's saying he's so set on preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. This is why he's not worried about Herod. Because he's worried about all the people of God that just don't seem to understand who he really is. This is a cry of grief reflecting his broken heart that the people of God, God's very own people, are rejecting him. And so the rest of the passage talks about what will take place. And, and Jesus says it very uh, straightforward. He says that their house will be left desolate. Is left to you desolate. This image of desolate house recalls the image of, of the era of exile, right? Where the people of God were split and, and overtaken by the Syrians and the Babylonians. Such desolation will remain until a large majority of the nation eventually recognizes the blessedness of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So I just want to give two conclusions, I think, and I've already really stated them, but I just want to kind of summarize them as we close today. The first is that this passage should bring about in us the image of God like a loving mother and this image of Jesus as this hen that is protecting his chicks, right? He's saying this, the loving, steadfast compassion of God. That Jesus longs to save people. At the heart of his mission, at the heart of his goal, at the heart of the grit that he's showing, of the heart of throwing off whatever threats are around him is his love for, for, for the people of God, of, for Jerusalem, and the extension now we can apply it to ourselves. I really believe that we are part of this kingdom that we are grafted in, that his love for you, for you to join within, in, with him in his kingdom. This fits the picture of the Gospels where Jesus so loved you, says in John 3, 16, that he came to rescue you, to save you from your sin. That he is the good shepherd, as it says in John, that lays down his life for the sheep, right? This is the constant image that we see. He's, uh, um, that Jesus is the, is the shepherd that has, has 100 sheep and when one goes away, what does he do? He leaves the 99 to go find the one. 
That if you hate him and run away, he, as it says in the, uh, the, the passage of the two brothers, right, the parable of the two brothers, but if you even remotely want to come back, you may think you can only be a slave, but God welcomes you back as his son, and he runs to you. And here he compares himself to a mother hen who longs to protect her children. So the loving, steadfast compassion of God for you. And the second is the stark reality. Ultimately, if you reject his protection, I want to say that if you reject his protection, his kingdom project, if you don't see Jesus as Lord, if you aren't willing to come, you will not be forced to do so. Jesus, in effect, in this passage, is letting you go. He's saying, if, you are not, if you're not willing, right, then you would just be, you'll be left to your desires. You'll be left in a desolate house. My desire is to save you. My desire is to bring you into the kingdom of God. I am coming for that purpose. And so that's why he is in this deep sadness. Uh, this fall, I've mentioned this a few times, but there's a lot of really great lessons that we learned from our formation course on 1 Samuel in the fall. And uh, I, one of the things that stood out to me in that, in that particular uh, uh, formation course is this desire that Israel had to have a king. They, they longed for a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to just be normal, Right? Can we just have a king, just like everybody else? And God says, well, I'm your king. You're unique. You're not like everybody else. And this is the best way forward. And they're like, wow, you really want a king? Well, you know, like, that's great, but we just want somebody, right? And Jesus is like, let me tell you what it's going to be like to have a king, right? You're going to be in wars constantly. You're going to experience heavy taxation because they're going to want all your money. And he just goes through this list of like four or five or six things. And he says, don't you see? It's so much better to be ruled by me. For me to be your king. For me to, to guide you. And they said, well, we still want a king. And guess what happened? God allowed them to have what they wished. God does this. He allows you to have your desires. He allows you to go the path that you want to go. And exactly as he said, took place. And we saw incredible failures by Saul and David and Solomon and many after. This is kind of the same thing. Jesus is saying, I am here. I'm here to die for you. I've come, I've, I've come, I've left heaven, right? To sacrifice my life for your sake, for the forgiveness of sins, so that you can be redeemed and you are rejecting me and you, your house will be left desolate. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not talking about Jesus' resurrection. This is actually talking about his second coming. In that day, the, the hope is, the prayer is, the belief is, is that Israel will say once again, blessed is he who welcomes um, me in the name of the Lord. Amen.